Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a wonderful film critic with bylines all over, but especially Rolling Stone, Polygon, Vulture, and RogerEbert.com. Very excited to welcome Katie Reif. How's it going, Katie? Hi. Yes, I'm doing good. I was. We were just talking off mic before we started about I live in a third floor apartment, and it is very, very hot in here today, which is kind of the opposite vibe as the movie we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's where I'm at in my life. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Our movie today is uh, icy cold for sure. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship with horror, how it started, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, okay. So my origin story that I always tell If you've heard me on a podcast before, you've probably heard this story before, (laughs) is that when I was a kid, my uncle was a cable guy. And so for one summer, we had cable and my parents taped everything that came on cable during that summer. (laughs) It was sometime in like the early 90s because we have the whole Back to the Future trilogy on, you know, on tape. Oh, yeah. It was like the first one, the second one, and then the HBO premiere of the third one. (laughs) It's like the end of the tape. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) But... Another movie that they taped off TV during that time was The Shining, and it was the only R-rated movie that we had in the house. And I wasn't supposed to be, you know, like, they were, my parents were fairly strict about this. I didn't have horror parents who were like, whatever, it's fine, watch whatever you wanted. (laughs) So I was a latchkey kid, and so I would come home after school and, like, just watch The Shining. (laughs) (laughs) Like this little freak just watching The Shining over and over again. (laughs) And I would like stop it before my parents got home and pick it up like the next day. (laughs) You know, and so I saw it like a kajillion times when I was a kid. And then I watched it again, like back in January. And I was like, oh, wow, there are so many layers of this movie that I did not pick up on when I was nine, like at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> yeah. And my, uh, right, I know. But and my sisters were twins, and so I was very into this, the spooky twins in that movie. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that, that I wouldn't say that's what started everything, but, like, you know, I, I didn't get really into movies until uh, high school, college, like end of high school, college, and definitely started getting heavy into horror around that time as well. But I guess The Shining is my origin story. Definitely sounds like the kind of thing that would uh, point you down a certain direction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, I was a little freak. I would go to the library and be like, do you have any books about witch hunts? (laughs) I'm like, you know, I'm like seven, eight, nine. (laughs) Sure. Hey, fascinating topic. (laughs) Absolutely. You have any books about medieval torture methods? (laughs) And the librarian's like, well, you're precocious. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror? Hmm. I don't know if I have a favorite subgenre. Like, there are certain things that I do like. I mean, well, actually, no, I take it back. I do have a favorite, and that is, like, uh, movies about Satanists. I will watch any old Boom. pile of dog shit if it's about Satanists. <laughs> like, I love that. And I like ghost movies, too, because I kind of sort of believe in ghosts. And so they're extra effective on me. Sure. But I like monster movies a whole lot. Love monsters. Yeah. Really kind of like gnarly stuff based on real life serial killers is kind of a guilty pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I like it all. But I think Satanists are my favorite. 
yeah, there's a uh, something about you know that specific strain of occultism that uh, just makes for for good movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like I like their aesthetics. I like their capes and their, and their chanting and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the devil's terms always sound kind of appealing, and so I'm like, hmm, right, maybe. <laughs> you also just really have to appreciate. A, a group that has an understanding and a flair for the dramatic, you know, <laughs> they're going big with the, with the ceremony. Oh yeah. They understand how you get people involved. Oh dude. They're the theater kids of the witchcraft world. <laughs> like for sure. <laughs> well, we're talking about the opposite of, of that flair yeah. for the dramatic today. We're talking about cure from 1997. Yes. Uh, absolutely fantastic movie written and directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, mm-hmm. who is a prolific Japanese director Absolutely known best to me personally for sweet home, which inspired resident evil and mm-hmm. pulse, which is uh, another just absolutely fantastic movie. I even have my pulse shirt on today. Oh, nice. So I was set. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Cure was pretty early in Kyoshi Kurosawa's career. Like you said, it came out in 97, which was four years before Pulse. Right. So actually, another type of movie that I very much enjoy, and one that kind of led me to this was, this is very much of my era, because I, like I said, I was getting real into movies around the turn of the millennium, because that's when I was in high school. And this was also a big time for J-horror You know, I've heard people use that term just to describe Japanese horror movies generally, and I've heard it to use to describe a specific kind of atmospheric, chilly, creepy, often about the internet, horror movie from Japan that there was kind of a wave of them in starting the late 90s in Japan, but it translated up through the mid to late 2000s in America when you had things like the Ring remake. I think it's really fascinating to look at these like waves of cinema and stuff. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to sort of talk a little bit about this transitory period. Thanks to more accessible home video formats at the time and an increasing demand for international crime and horror movies, more shocking pulp had sort of started to cross over to the U.S. in the 90s and 2000s, mm-hmm. which did kind of fly in the face of the uh, respectable reputation that Japanese cinema had sort of established in the 60s, even as more outlandish but still charming movies like Tampopo came out in 85. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all very much art films, for sure. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you look at, like, Quidon, which came out in the 60s. You know, that's, right. that's a ho- Japanese horror movie, obviously, but it is, it's a very dignified horror movie, I guess. Like, it's based in folklore, and it's very staged and artistically done. And so it, it, it very much is a different thing from J-horror, which are often kind of, like, trashy movies about te- about <laughs> teenagers. Not this one today. Again, it stands out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and this was pretty early in the, in the sort of movement, like you said, mm-hmm. a year before The Ring made such huge waves. And the interesting difference to me is that because it is that transitory moment in Japanese cinema and not squarely in the J-horror movement, Mm -hmm. it has sort of a different aesthetic to the movies. Like you said, you know, it looks like it was made for the theater as opposed to a lot of these J-horror movies that 
leverage the limitations of the format, you know, to experiment with scares. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Particularly home video. Yeah. And this movie, on the other hand, is long and clear master shots as opposed Mm -hmm. to the sort of like grainy and unstable framing and the quick cuts more typically associated with the J-horror movement. But I mean, there is a brief scene of a VH of a, you know, creepy VHS tape in this movie. And it's not as linked. I mean, Pulse is obviously much more linked to, you know, technology and the kind of like void of the internet. But there's Mm -hmm. a few light elements of of that in here. But, you know, the movie that this movie reminds me a lot of the kind of serial killer thrillers that were coming out of America around this time, you know, definitely it's very, it's post silence of the lambs in its own way. And it's a, it, it kind of reminds me, uh, you know, there's some seven like things about it as well. Of course, that's, that's like the classic touchstone <laughs> for all of them, but. <laughs> There's some things about this that remind me of Seven. It definitely is interesting that it really comes out at the perfect time because mm-hmm. it's a transitory moment for serial killer movies as well. Yes, you know, uh-huh. like you said, Silence of the Lambs had come out in 1991 and we had just glutted ourselves on these movies. You know, by the time 1998 and Summer of Sam comes out, we're really just oversaturated with these. Mm-hmm. But this movie uses a serial killer format and then keeps it fresh by adding some supernatural elements, discussing that sort of depersonalization and isolation of the internet age in such a fascinating way that it does sort of uh, escape the confines of both Japanese ghost story and American serial killer movie to meet in the perfect middle ground Venn diagram. It's both and neither at the same time. And you make an interesting point in that, you know, with Pulse, the kind of depersonalization and isolation and just the kind of idea of the terrifying void, you know, just the void as a as a source yeah. of horror. I mean, that comes across very clearly in Pulse because it's literally about the internet. But I think that you get a lot of those same things in this one, even though it doesn't, you know, engage with technology in the same way. I totally agree. And this was Kurosawa's breakout film, or at least the one that sort of launched him into respectability. Mm-hmm. Previously, he had been working on more straightforward V cinema action stuff, like several suit yourself or shoot yourself movies, which is fantastic title. <laughs> <laughs> And also several pink films, which were sort of more softcore movies that had nudity in them. Mm-hmm. And that was how a lot of this generation of Japanese filmmakers got started, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he said that he was inspired to write this movie watching the neighbors of a murderer get interviewed on the news and say all the cliches. You know, he was so quiet, so friendly, never would have expected it to be them. Mm-hmm. And this led him to wonder, you know, what if what they're saying is true? What if it wasn't the murderer's fault? And what if someone influenced him to perform these killings? Mm-hmm. And it's a, I think that that's a great question to start from to make a damn scary movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Something that's very interesting about this movie that I think is like specifically a part of Japanese culture is the way that the killer that we're referring to, who we'll go into more detail later on, but he he influences people into killing other people. And it's very interesting in this film. He's like, he's a force of just chaos. And, uh, and a lot of the times he's very disrespectful to authority and he does this, you know, this mind control killer trick to like doctors and police officers and all these respectable people in society. And, you know, Japan is such an ordered society. And I think that there's something, there's a specific kind of horror in the way that this like 
just chaotic force upends the like the structure and the order of society. But I think that it's universal too, because it's also about like the fear of losing control over your own mind. Absolutely. You know, (laughs) this is going to sound, you know, I know it's a meme at this point to be like, oh, he's going Joker mode, but (laughs) this guy is for real. Like I, I found this quote from Kurosawa about like societal obligations Mm -hmm. and and this movie. And he said to be truly sane in society, it's possible that one needs to escape the frameworks and the confines of our value system in society, such as morality, law, and justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this movie, (laughs) well, it's interesting though, you know, Joker is a movie that runs very hot, but as we alluded to earlier, this movie runs very cold. You know, like uh, there is kind of like a a rage against the established order in this movie, but it but it's presented in this very chilly package. Like you were saying, a lot of a lot of long shots. There is not a single appealing interior in the entire movie. (laughs) Like it is all just, you know, um, apartments with nothing hanging on the walls and bare concrete rooms, you know, like (laughs) beaches on a cloudy day like it's a very gray kind of setting that it takes place in and one thing i love about this movie and i know the word lynchian gets tossed around a lot but i think this is kind of lynchian is the way that they he makes so much use of like empty space on the soundtrack this sort of almost industrial sounding like howling emptiness he uses that a lot in the sound mix and david lynch uses that a lot in his work too yeah he definitely does One thing I also love about this movie, just while we're talking about sort of priming people for the themes of it, there's a lot of sort of questioning about selfhood. You know, if we're just the person we present or if there is more interiority than that, you know, uh, Mamiya is constantly asking people, who are you with the implication that their job and role in society has purged their actual self existing purely externally. And he wants us to sort of examine this through uh, Socratic questioning. Yeah, and like I said, that's a really kind of scary thing for Japanese audiences in particular because of the emphasis placed on, like, ordering your role in society. There's a saying in Japanese, um, uh, it translates to, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. And Mamiya is definitely a nail that sticks up. Oh, yeah. And another interesting quote that I found from Kurosawa while I was reading about this, he was asked about directly experiencing hypnotism. And he said, quote, Uh, no, never. I had the chance a couple times, but to be honest, I was scared. I did have the utter confidence that I would never be susceptible to being hypnotized, but I was told by several people that those people, those who are the most confident, are the ones who are the most vulnerable to this type of thing. When the chance arose, I basically said, no, let's not do this. So now I ask Katie, have you ever been hypnotized? I have not been hypnotized. But I mean, that quote like speaks so much. I feel like he put that into this movie. The idea that the person who thinks they're the most in control is the one who's the easiest to take down. Like that's that's part of this movie. But like it's such a, you know, a lot of times when you look at a lot of American or Western, you know, English language horror films that have come out in the past 10 years or so, people like to throw the word elevated around, you know, you've had a lot of films that are about, quote unquote, these big themes, you know, like trauma, grief, those are the big ones. And this one is, you know, in that way, quote unquote, about mental illness, because like, 
you have the subplot where the the detective's wife is, you know, she she's she's been diagnosed with some unspoken mental illness. And, you know, she isn't always in control of like her thoughts and actions. And there's that I think that's a big fear that kind of hangs around this movie is the fear of losing control of your thoughts and actions and maybe not even realizing that you're not in control of your thoughts and actions. And that is existentially yeah. a very scary thing. I think that they do such a great job of communicating that fear to us as an audience in so many little ways. You know, I think that the dispassionate long shots help to put us in this mindset. I think that the quick jumps from location to location mm -hmm. really help to drive this home. You know, constantly just like Fumier, I'm like, how the hell did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Fumier is the, the main detective's wife. Right, his wife. Yes, yeah. and uh, and yeah, she has some undi unspecified dementia kind of forgetfulness. Yeah, going on. Yeah, the the main way they kind of sh this movie is very big on show not. Well, I don't know. There's a fair amount of exposition in this movie, but the way that they show not tell with her mental illness is uh, one night he comes home and she put meat in the in the washing machine. Like it, it's just something like that where her thoughts are her thoughts don't make sense to other people. <laughs> Yeah. And let's get into the cast. You yeah. know, it, we spend a lot of the time with Koji Yakusho as our detective Takabe. He is incredible. Just yeah. simmering with repression. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Classic Japanese tough guy detective character. But, you know, yeah, this movie really goes about undermining his like control and authority. And he had established credibility in the international hit Shall We Dance and was a major get for this movie. But Kurosawa said that he'd been interested in him from the start because well so this is the first of several collaborations between these two i should mm -hmm. specify and kurosawa said that koji played varied characters but that they always brought some ambiguity to them a little bit of moral grayness and he thought that he'd be perfect for bringing the single-minded pursuit but also the vulnerability to exploitation by the killer and i think that he just absolutely knocks it out of the park yeah absolutely um Maybe we can get to this more later, but honestly, one of my favorite things in this movie is the interplay between Yakusho and then uh, Masato Hagiwara, who plays the antagonist, Mamiya. Right. And Mamiya, that's another just outstanding performance. It is remarkable to me that this performance doesn't become tiring as the movie continues. Yeah, right. Like this guy would be so aggravating in real life. Like there's a few different times where uh, Takabe, the detective played by Koji Yashuko, he almost throttles the guy and you kind of understand because like he's kind of annoying. <laughs> because his whole thing is, you know, he comes into a room and he acts like he has amnesia. But he does it in this. Uh, he's got this little sneer on his face the whole time where he'll be like, who are you? Where am I? And he just repeats these very basic questions over and over again, acting like he has no idea who he is or where he's at or what's going on. But he's actually trying to pull these people in so he can hypnotize them. And I can only imagine if you were trying to, like in the interrogation scene in this movie, just trying to get this guy to answer one fucking question. It'd be <laughs> so annoying, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it makes it 
so rewarding when the cracks do start to show as uh-huh. we get towards the back half of this movie. Right. Because Takabe's a pretty good detective. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's good at his job. He's not like an incompetent detective like you sometimes see in movies. He's quite good at his job and he can figure out yeah. what's going on there. I think that it's great that he's not incompetent. I think that, that it makes it much, the stakes feel, even though it, you know it is not a universe ending stakes, <laughs> it is, still feels very intense and, and serious because you're not like, oh, any any real cop or, or any competent cop could have solved this in a second. Right. You know, exactly. The fact that he is able to uh, put two and two together and still get sort of uh, thrown back by this, I think it, is, it says so much about the, the, the abilities of our antagonist and, and how seriously we should take him. Yeah, because, you know, if you think about it, all you have to you. All you have to do is have a conversation with this guy. Like talking to this guy is dangerous, you know. Yeah. Like there and and that when I was talking about the interplay in the movie, once um, Takabe figures this out that just talking to this guy is he hasn't confirmed it. He spends the whole movie confirming it, but he suspects that just talking to Mamiya is what's making all these people just flip a switch and become murderers. Right. And from then on, all of their conversations are so interesting because they're both talking past each other, trying to stay one step of each other and try to trip each other up and get answers out of each other and evade the other guy's questions at the same time, you know? And at times... Takabe just takes Mamiya's head and kind of like whacks it on the table or whatever (laughs) to get because, well, I mean, and it's kind of justified because if you let him keep talking, he's going to take over your mind. It's this otherworldly power that he has. It's like really subtle and really dangerous. Absolutely. It's, It's really fantastic. Yeah. This movie is also incredibly low budget. Mm. It's estimated at 1 million Japanese yen which adjusted for historical currency exchange rates is about $12,000 today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, like I was saying, the villain's power is that he can talk people into doing things. That's pretty, you know, you don't need a lot of, you don't need a lot of effects for that. (laughs) That being said, there's some pretty explicit gore in this movie. There's one part where somebody peels somebody else's face off, like cuts their face around the bottom and peels it off. So gross. (laughs) Oh, it's grody. I really love that. It was really shocking, too. It is shocking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kurosawa said about the low budget, this is a quote, it was produced by twins, the same company that produced my V Cinema works. The crew consisted mostly of the same people. And although this cast was different, I wasn't aiming to make anything completely different from my V Cinema films. So, you know, it does keep that sort of pulpy edge, that shocking gore, Mm -hmm. you know, that we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. while also bridging that theatrical gap. And that budget is made even more impressive since it was shot on film, not digital. So, you know, time is really money. Right. Like, that's like, they must have spent all of the money on film. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a short movie, too. Right. Because, like, I don't, you know, I'm not a filmmaker myself, but I've talked to some filmmakers about their budgets. And it sounds like it's at least five figures if you want to shoot on film i don't know how it was in the yeah. 90s versus today today it's more of like a boutique thing so it might be more expensive but yeah like yeah probably most of the budget went to film <laughs> at that low of a price it makes it so impressive that it looks as good as it does yeah and you know about the balance between the eeriness and the more shocking elements yeah like a dip like imagine if takashi Mike had made this movie it would be quite different it would be splashier <laughs> You know, yes, like, and yes. I mean, splashier in a like 
dynamic sense and in that there'd be more blood there'd be blood splattering everywhere (laughs) but uh, like it's so much about the atmosphere that's so much of what makes this movie so engrossing you know i think this movie it really keeps you just the fact that what seemed like these sort of any little ordinary conversation can be filled with so much like fear and danger like snap right away once you figure out the nature of what's happening in the movie. But also there's something that I really love in Pulse that you also see here, which is I feel like Kurosawa during this period was really exploring the idea of, like I was saying, the void, Mm -hmm. just sort of like emptiness and how scary emptiness is. Like as human beings, we always want to fill up these gaps, you know, when there's a pause in conversation, a lot of times people will just start talking because they don't want that empty air. And, right. and I feel like Kurosawa's movies around this time, you know, um, Cure and Pulse in particular, are really exploring like the how scary it is. There's just nothing. And it does that through the amnesia thing and the idea of like, your mind just being this thing that's just sort of floating out there and someone can snatch it away <laughs> from you at any time. Yeah, I love that. I also think that it is really deftly explored, not only uh, the void sort of being an, an external thing, but right. I think he also is doing a really great job of exploring the void of our internal selves, you know? Yeah, totally. The idea, you, literally the the tagline of, of Pulse is like, what do you want? Do you want to meet a ghost? Like the idea of reaching out to someone else on the internet and them just being this like illusion, this fi- mm-hmm. this fiction that there is nothing really there, and it's it's really just what you're bringing to it is is really something interesting. But in Cure, that's inside your own head, which in a lot of ways <laughs> is even scarier. That's happening inside yeah. of your own mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. This movie released in 1997, like I said, but the screening at the Toronto International Film Fest in 1999 was really where it caught the attention of Western audiences, and it finally got a release here in the U.S. on July 8th, 2001, where people liked it, including us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this still happens sometimes, you know, where you'll have a film that was from Asia, like one cut of the dead took three or four years to finally make it to American theaters. It still happens sometimes. But I I see it a lot with J-horror films of the 90s and 2000s in particular. There was usually like a, it it would open in Japan and then it would play a film festival, an international festival like a year later and then a year after that it would come out you know, in the States. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think uh, detention, the Taiwanese film from 2019, I think is still kind of caught up in that. And, uh, and yeah, that was something that I saw at a festival, loved it. And I'm trying to tell people to go see it. And you're just like, well, it needs, it needs a wide release. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Oh, there's a, there's a thread in this movie that is something that, I've got to admit that I don't really, I'm not quite sure what's going on with it. It feels like the movie, uh, you know, kind of dangles it in front of you and then pulls it away, which is this, it brings in the story of Bluebeard. Like it, it brings in this kind of like a uh, fairy tale, almost like young archetype type of thing in, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like that's one element of the film that I don't think I like when I watched it again, I was like, oh, yeah, this is an enigmatic movie where more is shown than said, but it's not hard to figure out what's happening. You know what I mean? 
Right. But I think that that there that that one element is still mysterious to me. Yeah, that was definitely something that I kind of wrestled with myself. You know, mm-hmm. it, they put enough emphasis on it where you're like, this is something I'm supposed to be thinking about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm staring into the void. I'm so <laughs> <laughs> I can't think about fairy tales right now. <laughs> Bluebeard's head just hovers over. Oh, it's like, no. Not now, Bluebeard. I'm contemplating the void. <laughs> um. <laughs> that should be the tagline for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, to me, Bluebeard is an interesting story in and of itself because it is a particularly aggressively violent Mm -hmm. fable, you know, even accounting for how violent fables used to be. And I think that what's interesting, what makes an interesting choice for this is that the idea that she, that knowledge is sort of what drives the story of Bluebeard, that there is this forbidden knowledge behind the door and ultimately, it is the pursuit of that knowledge that causes the ending of the story. And mm. where it seems like the ending of the story is is a lot of negative stuff happening and that she almost gets killed. Ultimately, the, when the king dies, she and her brothers become they inherit the kingdom. Yeah. And so there is kind of this idea that knowledge is important and leads to prosperity, even if it is something grim that you'd rather not deal with, like the idea of talking to your wife if, about how she's feeling, mm. if, if she has some kind of dementia, maybe. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Or the clearly in this film, Mamiya has developed some sort of technique that is based on mesmerism and hypnotism, but he right. he's unlocked some new secret level to it. And there's a couple lines in here. Oh, this movie has one of my favorite things in the whole world, which is when the protagonist is friends with an expert in whatever spooky thing is happening. And they're <laughs> like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you all about it. And in this, in this movie, you know, Takabe the detective, he works a lot with uh, a guy who he seems to be a forensic psychiatrist or a forensic psychologist type of character. Right. It, 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 it plays into the sort of Hannibal Lecter of it all in this movie because they capture Mamiya midway through the movie. And so a lot of their conversations after that do take on like you, that's where I think that's where the post silence of the lambs comes into this movie. But um, but anyway, the doctor is the one who tell who finds all this background information about mesmerism and hypnotism. And he there's one line that he says is something like, yes, in Japan, the, there's an occult thread of the study of hypnotism. And they, they just kind of leave it at that. But. I, I yeah soul conjuring yeah yeah soul conjuring <laughs> but I guess my point is is that it does move into the realm of the supernatural there yeah I love that and Sakuma is the name of that doctor mm-hmm. and, and he's a fun character I also really enjoy that kind of uh, expert but you know breaks it down in friendly jargon <laughs> the yeah. guy. but I also really like that he is also like hey can't trust everything you read, you know, right. Things, you know, you got to just take on faith. He, he's a really interesting character to, to be a sort of a foil for Takabe. Yeah. And to help out, you know, bring a lot of the exposition forward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to the film's credit, it does make sense for there to be a, like a forensic psychologist who works with homicide detectives. Like that's a common thing. Definitely. Yeah. 
Okay, let's uh, let's get into the actual plot of this movie. Yeah, the it does start with Bluebeard and Fumier, mm-hmm. and she's in some kind of therapy and discussing the book. But the doctor that she is discussing it with is very disconnected. You know, they're really sort of setting the thesis up right away. He is comically far away mm-hmm. <laughs> he's sitting from her. Yeah, and satisfied with small talk. You know, this is not a real therapy session that's happening here. Right. This is what we call a theme, my friend. We're setting up some themes. <laughs> <laughs> Visually. <laughs> and that setting up of themes definitely persists into the second scene, which is our first murder, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the music gives it a very strange tone, almost matter of fact. Very strange tone or cheerful. Yeah. 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 Peppy. Yeah. It, it's it's really strange. It definitely makes us complicit in the sort of dispassionate observer mm-hmm, aspect mm-hmm. with the, the shot and the music choices and everything. Just really well done. Unsettling. Definitely. And I love the title dropping into over our disgruntled hero, <laughs> Detective Takabe. He's what a great introduction to him. Mm-hmm. The grisly scene that greets the detective also reveals that the killer straight up left their ID there, which is, of course, they go, well, this isn't very forward thinking of him. (laughs) (laughs) And the wounds on the woman are also a giant X cut into her neck. And they say that this isn't even the thing that killed her. This is done afterward. Now, they find this guy hiding naked in fetal position, having been reborn into chaos. And this is such a great subversion of what you'd expect, or at least what I expect. You know, you think, oh, it's going to be about chasing this guy. And then, no, it's not that simple. He's right here. We're gonna right. have to do it. It's going to be way more complicated than that, George. Well, like I said, even even the movie's big bad, Mamiya, he, ha- midway through the film, he's in police custody. Yeah, exactly. And this guy confesses at the station, no problem. But the, the, the issue is that he's not the first person to do this, mm-hmm. you know, to to commit this crime in this way or to just confess. Mm-hmm. This is the third in two months that match not only the murder style, but then also basically the same exact uh, shell-shocked aspect and everything. This is crazy. That's like crazy for Japan. <laughs> Even Tokyo has a pretty <laughs> low murder rate. And they can't figure it out. I love this sort of like looking at the board and being like, uh, are there any movies or anything that this could be like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They say something like, do they all go to the same school or something? They're just yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, like it's very obvious who did all of these murders and they all have a common M.O. But the why is just there's no evidence at all. That's right. Yeah. And Takabe's pal Sakuma says he guesses the devil made them do it. <laughs> yeah, I would be curious to know what the actual idiom in Japanese is for that. Like, I'm sure they're yeah. translating it colloquially. Definitely. I think that it is interesting in a way, because if you believe the idea that Mamiya is presenting, that this is in everybody mm-hmm. and that this sort of human nature of being inherently flawed and evil, you know, saying the devil made them do it kind of could be correct in a way. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Detective Takabe refuses to believe that these are just happening, though. Yeah, he's there has to be a link. And I get it because it's such a they all die in this very specific, weird, random way with no motive. It's it's creepy. (laughs) Obviously, certainly is. (laughs) I mentioned that our first glimpse of Takabe rocks, but so, too, does our first glimpse of Mamiya. Yeah. So eerie with him staring right down the camera and then starting to approach it as well. Oh, very freaky. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, we were talking, you know, we were talking about the void when we were kind of setting up the movie. He really personifies it. And, you know, the, the actor Masato Hagiwara, he, he, he nails it in terms of just, there's something really, really unsettling about this guy. Like, there, yeah. he's acting in this way that's so weird and random that there has to be something more going on. But his motivations are so inscrutable. It's very creepy. It's also we get this beautiful pan across the beach as Mamiya starts to ask a bunch of these repeating questions to another man on the beach. You know, he says he doesn't remember who he is. And then he collapses. So the second guy takes him home. And I wanted to point out that even though there are a lot of really beautiful master shots that are Mm -hmm. pretty far away, Mm -hmm. one thing I do love is that the camera does stay pretty active. There is a lot of panning and motion going on that does keep it from feeling too static. Right. Yeah. And here at this teacher's house, amid claims of amnesia, he questions this man over and over asking about who he is. And he says, I teach school and it's just me and my wife. There's nothing to tell, which again sort of reinforces this idea that the job is all he has. He doesn't mm-hmm. see any interiority within himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the questions when Mia asks everybody over and over again is, who are you? And like we were saying, that that speaks to a lot of different things. It's be, It's like a... It speaks to a specific thing in Japanese society and then also kind of universal. I mean, you know, it's not just in Japan that you're defined by your job. It's very much the sure, case in America, not. too, you know? Yeah, it, 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 I, the, if, when he keeps asking people, who are you, over and over again, like that, when he's asking, who am I? What's my name? What's your name? Where am I? Those kind of questions over and over. That's the part that's kind of annoying. But when he keeps going, who are you? <laughs> who are you? Over and over again. That's the spooky one. That's the spooky question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I love, especially when, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but this is very minor, when he makes it even more explicit and he says, okay, let me try again. Fujiwara of headquarters. Who are you? Yes, yes. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he's frustrated with these idiots <laughs> who can't understand. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fantastic. And he hypnotizes this detective. Suddenly he or the, the teacher, excuse me. Suddenly the teacher is hypnotized. And this scene is genuinely hypnotic to me. You know, the pacing around, the persistent questions, the sudden flame. Mm-hmm. It is done so fantastically well. And then this is sort of replicated in the blocking as we rejoin our detective as well. You know, the following someone around who is sort of a little more blank than the person following them, having to sort of clean up after them and get frustrated with their more childish behavior. Mm -hmm. It's just such a great sort of mirror image between the two before they even meet. Yeah. And the flame you were talking about, that's one of the ways that Mamiya will kind of, you know, because... The minute he starts talking to someone, I think that he's he's laying the groundwork to hypnotize them from the minute he meets yeah. somebody. He's kind of he's already targeted them. But like the questions escalate and escalate. And then he'll either pull out a lighter or if he doesn't have his lighter, he'll spill a little bit of water on the floor. And that kind of acts as this uh, this magnet or this signal that. Yeah, the way in. Yeah, yeah, it activates the 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 hypnotism, I suppose. And that 
I mean, I don't know if this would have had anything to do with Kurosawa's thought process writing this film at all, but it reminded me of ideas about MK Ultra and the Manchurian Candidate, and there being these triggers yeah. that can make uh, turn ordinary people into assassins, and they never even knew they were assassins, you know? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, MK Ultra actually happened, but they never made mind slaves. It's not that part's not real. It was right. a campaign, but it was unsuccessful. They did not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> they tried though. <laughs> they only made it to Jacob's ladder, not to <laughs> Cure. Yeah, they didn't quite make it to Cure, but they were they they were yeah. working on it though. They they only successfully fucked people up. <laughs> right, exactly, they broke people, but they never put them back together again. Exactly. <laughs> A few other things that I wanted to talk about as Takabe sort of heads home, mm-hmm. which is first of all, he stops in the dry cleaners, and we sort of see someone else muttering under their breath about how pissed off they are at the service they're getting. And then when they're like, here's your clothes. Sorry about that. The guy's like, oh, no problem. See you later. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that sort of plays into the idea of presenting and and the sort of uh, untapped rage. Yeah. That is a thousand small indignities that we all suffer every day. Right. Sort of exactly. And, and kind of the difference between the inside and the outside. Of what you what you yes. present versus what you're actually thinking. I also want to say that in addition to the master shots uh, being just good looking, I love that they are long. It feels almost like a play a lot of the time, sort of watching these people wander around a location for a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think that it really works to the movie's benefit in creating that mesmeric feeling. Yeah, I like long shots used in horror movies to that mesmeric effect like you were talking about. I think when you're watching something like a horror movie and the camera holds just a little bit longer than you might be expecting it to or it uses these really long shots it it fucks with your anticipation you know it it makes you it's unsettling because it fucks with your idea of like what should be happening you're like oh no it should have cut away by now but it didn't oh my god what's happening I, (laughs) i i i like that technique a lot absolutely he comes home the house is very clean speaking of that order you know yeah. And he comes home to the woman from the very beginning, mm-hmm. Fumier. And, you know, we talk about sort of the dementia maybe being the cause of why she's p- putting on the dryer and everything while mm-hmm. there's nothing in it at the time. And I think that there's also an element of that sort of disconnection between the two of them and just like looking for any like white noise, the, a sign of life in the house while he's mm-hmm. out all day chasing down a murderer. Yeah, yeah. And at one point she says something like, oh, I didn't do anything today. Right. <laughs> and there's definitely, yeah, they're definitely not, ta- there's a, there's a, so many things happening that they are just not talking about. Yeah. And he says, oh, we'll take a trip wherever you want after the case. And she goes, oh, from one extreme to the other. Yeah. People are definitely disconnected from each other as well as themselves in this movie. Yes. Which is in Pulse too, I think. Exactly. Yes. Definitely persists in the Pulse. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, the teacher has killed his wife in the same method. Again, no connections, no ideas why. At the time, it just felt like the natural thing to do, he said. But he also denies talking to anybody. So that's mm-hmm. our first big, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Amnesia. Yeah. Okay. I feel like if you could program someone to kill, you could program them to forget that they talk to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> That feels like the easy part, for sure. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the other things that these wide master shots allow for is a little bit of comedy here and there. 
where, uh, you know, this guy is taken out of frame and then he runs back in to slam against the wall and then against the table as well. And it's just, uh, you know, using the frame in that way is is very funny, especially in a wide shot like that. Yeah, yeah. Because of the shooting style and because the atmosphere, you know, this is such a film about like uh, alienation and disconnection that a lot of the comedic moments in it don't land, but it's not. But it, it's not a bad thing because it's just like one more weird, disconnected, bizarre, random <laughs> thing in a movie that yeah. is all about that. You know, like it kind of works, actually. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And Takabe's friend, the psychologist, says nobody can understand what motivates a criminal, not even a criminal. You're getting in too deep. Mm-hmm. But Takabe responds, no, all I want is to find the words that will explain the crime. That's my job. He is clearly obsessing he needs to have an explanation a concrete thing that he can latch on to yeah the the detective who gets obsessed and gets too close to the case is you know a pretty common trope and it, it you know this film does have it but it's so well done you can't even get mad at it for having that cliche in it i don't think oh no definitely not and one of the cops sees mamia jumping from a roof and takes him in <laughs> Yeah, another just random thing. He just he just climbs on top of some building and then just whoop, you know, he's just whoop, <laughs> off the off the side of the building. And yeah, you don't know whether to laugh or what. Yeah, it's a very yeah. unnerving thing to do. Yeah, especially when the cops like, oh, fucking idiot. Yeah, the cops <laughs> like, what, what the fuck? is he doing? <laughs> and the other cop is disturbed by the against the rules smoking that goes on. Oh yeah, so he leaves. <laughs> well, he is right though. He, he's right. The cigarette lighter is bad news. That's when you're about to get hypnotized, dude. Absolutely. Yeah. Smoking is bad. <laughs> Smoking kills more Smoking than just kills. you. <laughs> Smoking kills when a super powered hypnotist. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> waves the lighter in your face. <laughs> Those PSAs, like they wound up like cutting it back and back and back. And, and they lost a little bit of the, uh, the power, I think, a little of the impact, but mm-hmm. you know, it is what it it's is. It's just like it's a, it's a very specific PSA. <laughs> <laughs> it, clearly, it's important though. Now, if you smoke, you'll have a lighter on you, and then the movie Cure could happen to you. Have you thought about that? <laughs> That's right. Hey, everyone is so worried about getting ringed that they're like, oh, we can't have scary, like old black and white footage yeah. that pops up. Got to get worried about getting cured. Yep. <laughs> no lighters, no water. And so Mamiya hypnotizes the cop that brought him in. And this is our first sort of disturbing moment of lucidity mm-hmm. where he, he clearly does remember some stuff. And he refers to this cop by his name. Uh, although I didn't write it down. I just called him murder cop. So <laughs> bad, bad note taking by George. But what are you going to do? <laughs> Fumie gets lost on the way to the doctors and he just goes, well, I guess it worked out. So great doctoring. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The doctor's like, well, you got here. (laughs) (laughs) She also no longer recognizes Bluebeard, the book. So Mm -hmm. this is really where it's it's they're driving it home that this is a a degrading situation. Despite her insistence that she's feeling well. Yeah, she's got some pretty alarming memory issues going on, especially because she's a young she's a 30s at the oldest and it's. Yeah, You know, I mean, it's alarming when that happens to someone who's in their 70s or 80s, but in your 30s to like, you know, just have those sorts of Alzheimer's like memory problems is pretty scary. Definitely. And Takabe does stumble onto the idea that it might be hypnosis and he runs it past Sakuma 
But Sakuma says you can't compromise someone's moral compass. Again, sort of playing with this idea that it could be anyone, even your neighbor, that this is mm-hmm. inside everybody. Right. That anybody has the potential to be a killer if you just nudge them a little bit. Right. And that is further demonstrated by the hypnotized cop killing the other one very casually the next day. I love that shot. Shooting him in cold blood right next to the no more gun sign. Yeah, yeah. So the scene that you're talking about is one of these very like passive, far away long shots. But I love this one because it's just casually outside of the police box. You know, in one minute he's taking the trash out and then almost as an afterthought, he's like, oh, yeah, he pulls out his gun and just shoots the other guy, you know, right <laughs> in the street in the middle of the day. It's this very ordinary, regular day. And then all of a sudden, you know, just this senseless violence. Yeah. And Mamiya hypnotizes a doctor next and questions her on why she chose that career and how she wanted to cut a man open. And he says, all the things that were inside me are outside now. So I can see all the things inside you, but inside me is empty. So to this idea that he can see the the inner workings of everybody. And the implication here is also that the murder is incited by conjuring the feeling of humiliation and that depersonalization, you know, misogyny in the workplace for this doctor specifically, the mm-hmm. uh, annoying rules following nerds for the the cop that we just saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and he doesn't make these people do these things so much as he draws them out of people. Something that isn't very clear in the movie that I think you can read either way is you can either see Mamiya as he's just this force of chaos in the universe, or you can see him as like someone who very deliberately set out to cause chaos as sort of like a, mm-hmm. almost a political end. And I'm not sure which one it is. I've always interpreted it as he's just kind of, you know, the void in human form. But when we're talking about it now, now I wonder if there is some sort of more... Like, because he had to execute a whole plan to develop this power, and he seeks out certain people deliberately, and I wonder what his master plan is, what his goal is. Yeah. He definitely hates society and wants to kind of rip it. He wants to kind of take this facade of order and normalcy and just rip a big hole in the middle of it. And perhaps even draw a giant X on it. Yeah. On the wall. Woo! I, I like that, you know, this was in ink, and so it kind of washes off pretty easy. That was nice of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of a visual, you know, a spooky visual side in the movie. There's one point where they're at uh, Sakuma's house, and he opens a door to a room, and then you see the X on the wall, and it's like, oh, he got you too! Uh. It's like this <laughs> like this harbinger that this person is compromised. They're under Mumia's control now. And I really, again, like this sort of reflective blocking that they do in the movie where Mamiya is hypnotizing this doctor and then we cut to Takabe following in his footsteps and clunkily hypnotizing the cop that they have just arrested. Uh-huh. I, th- I think that this is a really cool scene. He does get him to admit that there was someone else there and this you know l- nice low pulsing track that keeps it feeling really tense. The music in this, or I mean, it's kind of more of an ambient thing than music is really fantastic in this. It, it's super effective. Yeah, this movie, you know, we we're talking uh, all the stuff about it being chilly or whatever. That doesn't mean it's not thrilling. This is an ex- very suspenseful movie, particularly once 
the movie's whole game plan is kind of laid out, which, as I was referencing earlier, happens about midway through, where they bring Mamiya into custody, but they don't have anything to hold him on because there's no evidence, like, at all that he's done any of this. Right. Like, the movie gets, like, the back half of this movie is extremely suspenseful because, as I was saying earlier, you understand that this guy just looking at you and saying hi or just like asking you a question is is dangerous. It's a threat. Yeah. Every second that he holds him there and, and is susceptible to listening to him is, mm-hmm. is a ticking time bomb. Exactly. The interrogation in, scene in this film is fabulous because Mamiya's trying to hypnotize Takabe. Takabe's trying to break through Mamiya's bullshit. They're talking at each <laughs> other and to each other at the same time. And, you know, Takabe... Every once in a while, he'll just basically be like, fuck you, to kind of like break Mamiya's train of thought. So he can't hypnotize him. Yeah, (laughs) it's 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 awesome. It's so cool. (laughs) This is also where we get that grody scene of the doctor peeling the guy's face off. Yeah, absolutely spectacular in a public bathroom. It's so gross. (laughs) (laughs) It's I mean, unhygienic in addition to (laughs) for sure. (laughs) How you get an infection. Lisa, that guy's worried his face got peeled off. <laughs> the detective does get a call, though, that the cop brought in a suspicious person to the hospital and he does a sick driving reversal. This is another joke that does work for me. <laughs> yeah. He does track Mamiya down to a shadowy room and Mamiya asks, who are you? But Takabe says, I ask the questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's take a, him in. That's his primary way of kind of keeping from getting hypnotized. I'm not sure if he's fully aware that this is how he's keeping from being hypnotized or if he is just angry at this dude that's not cooperating with him you know that's another interesting ambiguous thing in this movie as you're not sure yeah you know Mamiya says he's a special one and so maybe this Mm -hmm. is just kind of like an instinctual thing Right, exactly. He might just, the same thing that makes him a good cop makes him impervious to being hypnotized, or he's onto Mamiya's game and he's not going to play it. You know, it's it's Boom. it's a little vague on this point, just like it's a little vague about what Mamiya's endgame is. Yep. And Mamiya is all amnesia again, and Takabe gets frustrated since Mamiya answers these questions with more questions, again, mostly about who he is and his job. And so uh, Takabe, you know, he comes very close to kicking his ass in this scene. He comes close to kicking his ass a couple times in this movie. Yes. <laughs> Which I understand. It's so annoying. And in fact, does uh, occasionally kick his ass. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> well, you know, he's this close to hypnotizing you, but you just smack him. Sure. Smack his head on the table. <laughs> Spell broken. Aha. Spell broken indeed. This is the one and only time that I will advocate for... <laughs> Police violence <laughs> is in the movie. That's also too. tacked on to the end of the uh, the cigarette smoking PSAs. Where yeah. it's like, also, if you do smoke and you get cured, it's allowed to be. You can beat the guy. Brutal police. Yeah, you can beat the guy up, <laughs> but only inside the movie cure. <laughs> yes, only if you are currently being cured. <laughs> yes, then you can just smack the guy's head on the table. Other than that, not okay. That's right. Takabe comes home. He shuts off the laundry machine again, and he discovers his wife isn't home rut row yeah he finds her lost in the park again and it's tough because you know she says she's trying to help out she was going to get some toothbrushes for the trip and he's like i'll do the shopping which first of all 
this dude is already being pulled in a million different directions mm-hmm. and is failing his home life currently. But then in addition to that, that is incredibly infantilizing mm-hmm. for him to uh, just be like, oh, you can't even handle this little task. But then on the other hand, you're like, well, she did get lost. <laughs> yeah, she did get lost. And the stuff she's saying about toothbrushes doesn't make all that much sense either. You know, that ambiguity that he was talking about, the the actor playing Takabe was bringing, I think, does extend beyond just the pursuing a killer mm-hmm. aspect into just the the familial choices that he makes. Right. Totally. Totally. There's a big burn on Mamiya's back, which Takabe tracks to a junkyard with an apartment that Mamiya paid a year's rent in advance for. So he's not uh, low on cash, despite uh, this sort of. Uh, despite being nebulous. a grad student. Because <laughs> yeah. he's a grad student. That's last anybody right. checked. That's what he did for a living. Yeah, that's right. I, how the heck did this guy get this money? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Hypnotism, maybe. <laughs> I get, yeah, I guess it pays well. <laughs> no, I mean, he hypnotized somebody to give him money. Oh. <laughs> I thought you meant he was like going to children's party and hypnotizing oh, no, them to no, have a no, nice no, time. No, no, no. <laughs> he went to the bank and went, you're going to give me 20 mm. grand, you know? That seems easier, I will admit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this is where he finds all these books indicating he's a grad student who studied these personality disorders and mesmerism, which is a precursor to hypnosis. Conceived in the 18th century by Franz Mesmer, who believed in the transference of energy from one person to the next. Yes, and this film gives Mesmer's theories, as we were saying before, sort of a uh, supernatural quality. Right. And there's this is sort of also bolstered by the paper that Mamiya wrote on animal magnetism mm-hmm. and sort of this inescapable pull that people and animals can exert. Mm-hmm. And then this is followed up by a fucked up monkey corpse with an X in its neck. I know the monkey corpse is so <laughs> fucked up. That poor monkey. I'm so sorry to that monkey. Yeah, it's shocking. It's yeah. sh- another shocking moment. Takabe rushes home and he finds that his wife has hanged herself. Or did she? Yeah, it was just a vision. Oh, my God. He's been talking to Mamiya. What's going on inside of his head? Uh. Great scene. I really love this. This is when it really starts to get good in that kind of, is it spooky or is the hero losing his mind? You know, another, another, another classic horror thing. (laughs) Definitely so. And Takabe does confront Mamiya about this and real, this is, he sort of realizes that he's been implanting these murderous hypnotic suggestions in people, but Mamiya needles him about his wife. He says, it's hard to be a detective with a crazy wife. You do it by keeping your job and life completely separate. The detective or the husband, which is the real you? Neither is the real you. Mm-hmm. The very uh, sort of cutting to the quick of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, all that stuff about like uh, societal roles and order and structure and, you know, what are you beyond that? It's a definite. Right. There's quite a few moments in this movie. I don't think that this movie ever really telegraphs much of anything in like an overly obvious way. But it does right. definitely get its points across, I think. He tries to hypnotize Takabe here, but Takabe slaps the lighter out of his hand and he's like, I was trained to never show emotion. And the result is I have bottled up rage issues and look at my wife as a burden. And now I can't be hypnotized. So boom, checkmate, bitch. <laughs> That's right. Joker mode engaged by Takabe as well. And and he he blames society. He says, her, I can forgive you. I can't. And uh, this is after complaining about how hard his job is. And then he has to come home and take care of his wife as well. Yeah. And, and how difficult he finds that. I mean, it's a lot. 
no, there's no doubt. I mean, he's pursuing a serial killer night and day, doing a lot of research. His wife is clearly going through something very yeah. intense, but it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, maybe if he followed up a little bit, then he would know that the hospital is not doing anything mm-hmm. and, and that that she's becoming more lost than he even knows. Yeah. It's it's kind of a, a cyclical sort of blame spiral. <laughs> totally. That Yeah, that's true. Like if he's never around and so he doesn't know that when she says, oh, I'm doing better, that that's just her opinion basically you know (laughs) and uh and her thoughts and opinions are have gone pretty far from everyone else's at this point yes and mamiya is impressed and takabe it seems to me that he sort of accidentally hypnotizes himself with the lighter here Mm. I like that this is sort of communicated through a, a rare close-up and it's it's a head-on shot of Takabe. There's been a lot of profile shots mostly through those wide masters and this is really fantastic. It feels like keeping his eye on the prize, kind of. Yeah, Kurosawa does not waste a close-up because he doesn't use that many of them, so... Yeah, <laughs> make the most of it for sure. Yep. And... This is another really creepy moment where the light fades from the room. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is the creepiest part of the whole movie to me. It's a subtle thing that you're sitting there and it's one of the long shots like they've been having. And you're sitting there being like, I can only imagine what what, watching in a theater. You'd be like, is something wrong with the projector? (laughs) Like, I can only imagine because back in the old film days, one time I was in a movie theater and the bulb burned out. And right, like it, it got darker and then it just kind of flicked off. And <laughs> and this movie, I, I wonder if people who saw it in theaters were like, something wrong with the project? No, it's just creepy. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's like they turn the brightness down, you know, like the brightness button on a laptop. It's like he's just clicking it, clicking it down, 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 down. It's so specific to the to the framing, though, mm-hmm. that they do such a great job of sort of keeping it confined to the one corner where you really sort of like shrink back and go up. Yeah, <laughs> because you see the shadows deepening. It's really it's yeah. a very subtle, cool trick that maybe some directors should steal because I haven't really seen it used anywhere else. <laughs> this is supplemented as well by a rain cloud of ink forming above the lighter and extinguishing it. And Mamiya is like, the water will empty you out, make you calm and happy. You'll be born again, just like me. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, though, Takabe has kicked his ass. And when the other detective comes to check on him, Takabe kicks his ass, too, for telling Mamiya about his wife. He told him not to tell him anything. I don't know. Like I said, yeah. the one and only time that I'm OK with police violence is when somebody is beating up Mamiya. <laughs> because shut up, Mamiya. <laughs> We get another rare moment of lucidity during an inquest. We love an inquest when Mamiya says, oh, it must be a drag having him as a boss. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of look at each other like they're that's where you get into the Clarice and Hannibal Lecter of it all of like Mamiya is in a way helping Takabe solve the crime. I also think that this is a really interesting moment because in addition to just working as kind of like a funny moment where he suddenly is like, oh, it must suck to have this guy as a boss. It also does like kind of play into his method of needling at small transgressions, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, think of all the times that your boss has been just an asshole to you and made you come in on, on a day when you didn't want to work or whatever. This sort of cast off line 
is really a way of him digging further and further into Takabe's head. Yeah, and it says a lot about, you know, any potential motivation to why Mamiya might want to do this. And as you said earlier, it does seem to be a Joker kind of motivation of he just hates society and wants to bring it, he wants to bring it down. He wants to undermine it. Definitely. And he has pretty much reached the boiling point now between what's going on with Mamiya and what's going on with his wife, because he comes home, turns off the washing machine again, goes to check dinner and finds it to just be a raw steak. Mm -hmm. And while he's like sitting there in disbelief at this, his wife wakes up and turns back on the dryer. And so he turns it off again, hurls the steak across the room and he goes in seemingly to yell at her and finds a bunch of travel magazines and these two packed bags. Mm -hmm. So she has at least held on to that as possibly like, well, people need something to look forward to kind of thing. It's not all in vain. Right. It does give him something to hold on to like, oh, okay. Like she, she does want to go on a trip with me. Like we still have some kind of relationship. You can get something through to her. Right. And it makes the next scene that much more heartbreaking where it looks like he has decided, okay, screw this case. I'm going to Okinawa with my wife. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you notice that that's just fantasy because instead of buildings in the background, it is this incredible, just clouds streaming Mm -hmm. behind them in the windows. It's such a subtle, fantastical moment. And Mm -hmm. it does such a great job of communicating that surreal daydream vibe, the sort of, just offness of the hypnotism i love it love it love it yeah 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 me too yeah it's like a dream sequence but not right it also kind of looks like the graduate like the way that it's framed Uh, well yeah they're sitting in the back of the bus and all yeah yeah and it it feels like he just made this impulsive romantic decision that maybe wasn't for the best because maybe now there's a serial killer going and then even that gets pulled out from under you where you go, oh, no, he's actually putting his wife in the hospital full time. Like, yeah, uh, this is bad news for her. <laughs> well, things are really heating up with Mamiya at this point, And it is straight up. I mean, it's just it. I, I when I was watching the movie again last night, I wondered if maybe at this point he's thinking I talk to Mamiya every day. I can't risk having her around just in case. Right. He says just until my work calms down. Mm-hmm. So. The doctor says, don't get in too deep again. This is the second time someone has said that, but he has clearly completely chosen detective at this point and sacrificed the role of husband. Yeah, yeah. Or or anything. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anything else. Yeah. And the doctor says, you look sicker than your wife to me. It's not Mm. good to work so hard. Yeah, yeah. Kind of warns him against working too much. And Sakuma shows him this video from the late 19th century detailing the earliest material on hypnotism in Japan. Back then it was called soul conjuring. And like you said, was looked at much more occult, like clairvoyance and spiritualism. And because of that was much more secretive and suppressed by the government. So, you know, even that element of this government suppression and forced order upon people, I think is definitely playing into Mamiya's whole sort of rebellious nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, like we were saying up top, this is where they bring the J-Horror in with the spooky VHS tape and all the grain. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's 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 tr- it's film transferred to VHS, but nevertheless, they watch it on video. So <laughs> That's right. And, and in the video, the man draws an X with his hand. So there you go. Uh, it all connects the X's. And Takabe wonders if Mamiya had seen this movie and Sakuma thinks he's a missionary sent to propagate the ceremony. And, uh, you know, I think it's great. Also, there's a big X on the wall here. Yeah. And 
Right. Like, Takabe takes all this pretty well in stride. He's like, propagate the ceremony. X on the wall. Of course. I got to get back to work, man. Like, yeah. That's right. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, have a good night. He, like, leaves. <laughs> the apartment. Yeah, and it's the idea of one of the unspoken roles that he is sacrificing here is this friendship. Yeah, friend. Yeah. He's ceasing to be anything. Because he doesn't realize. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he is ceasing to be anything. He doesn't realize that Sakuma is going crazy. He's talked to Mamiya mm-hmm. and uh, and he pays the price for that. I wonder about that because like it, he's he's on this case and he's not a dumb guy. Mm. And so like I wonder if he just sees this goes, I'll take care of this later. I have other things to worry about. Or if he genuinely doesn't put together that Sakuma has talked to Mamiya and like, and it's too late for him. Yeah. I don't know. Could be either one. Mm -hmm. And it's another very dreamlike scene as the nurses are startled by some intense shaking. The other detective is there and hypnotized and unbothered though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's Mamiya beating up the radiator. And when Takabe gets there, the detective has let Mamiya out and killed himself. And the cops don't know where he is. Mm -hmm. Dr. Sakuma also appears to have killed himself and no emotion from Takabe at the find here, which, again, you know, sort of ceases to be anything besides detective. Mm -hmm. So he, he treks to this old building, kicks in the door and sees an old giant photo portrait behind a plastic sheet. It's so spooky. Oh, it's great. Such a spooky shot. And it does, again, play into this sort of idea of peeling back the veil to examine Mm -hmm. yourself sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Anyone who wants to meet his true self is fated to come here, says Mamiya, who emerges from the shadows. And Takabe calmly draws his gun and shoots him a bunch. (laughs) Yeah, but but see, that's the essence of their like cat and mouse game is that Mm -hmm. on the one hand, Mamiya wants to... It's like he's like, oh, you're special. You're not susceptible to my bullshit, basically. I like you, but I'm going to get you. And and that's like the power right. play between them, where that's what Mamiya's thinking. But then Takabe is just like, man, fuck you. And, you know? Yeah. And Right. Remember now, he says. <laughs> yeah. But I love the matter of factness of, with which, because so many times when you're watching a movie, you think, just shoot him. Just get it over with. <laughs> like, come on. Especially when the villain has yeah. mind powers. The obvious thing to do is to walk in the room and not let him say a word. Just shoot him. And <laughs> and this is the movie that actually does the logical thing. <laughs> yes. Just don't let him talk to you. And it it's unfortunately too late. What a, what a satisfying twist that he is still going to fall down this path to ruin despite doing the thing that everyone is always like, yo, this is all you got to do. Yeah, yeah, that should be the end of the movie, but... He finishes loading the clip into him after Mamiya makes an X gesture with his last bit of strength, and Takabe sits down in a flooded kitchen with a phonograph that describes the healing path. A nurse sees an image of a lady with an X carved in her throat, and Takabe is smoking now, eating dinner at the same place that he had before and drinking coffee, seeming much more relaxed than he had been even eating his whole meal this time. Unlike last time. Yeah. I mean, ostensibly, you know, he solved the case. He figured it out. It won't be a problem anymore. Right. Ostensibly because, because unfortunately he has also become a hypnosis murder man. Now Mm -hmm. (laughs) we learn this from a waitress going to kill someone here. Uh, It's we see her, her boss approach her and whisper something and she gets very frustrated and goes to kill her. And 
I love that we do get this sort of uh, ambiguity here where it's, of course, implied that that's what's about to happen, but you don't get the concrete, yes, she goes and kills her. According to Janice, because there is a 4K restoration of this going around, I was hoping that it was a Blu-ray already, and unfortunately, not the case. But there was some interesting information in the press materials Mm -hmm. for the 4K restoration, which was including that this stabbing was originally depicted. Oh! And then Kurosawa edited the film to imply it rather than show a final act of violence because he felt the initial version was too much. That's really interesting because the thing I love about it is, like you said... The, you know, the last image of the movie, you see Takabe smoking the cigarettes in the diner and everything should be over. It should be okay now. But then it's very subtle. It's it's the wide shots we've talked about over and over again on this podcast. And it's this busy diner full of people. And then you see the waitress just kind of walk over to one side and she takes the knife and holds it down at her side and starts walking forward with like this great purpose. And then it just cuts away. So you don't no you're like well does she kill everybody did takabe make her do it did are there other you know hypnotism people out there is it unreal you know it leaves you with so many questions and i love that this shot that is conveying all this information is in a crowded room because then you look at the faces of everybody in that room and go do they all have this in them it makes right it makes oh, yeah. such a powerful point without any dialogue it's so good It's really fantastic. I think it is a really impactful ending. And I think it is benefited by cutting before just seeing it. The idea that we are now wondering who, if if this is going to happen, that we have the fear within us now that it could be anybody, I think is just really fantastic. And how widespread is it? That's the thing I always ask myself when I ask this movie. So is there going to be like a zombie style apocalypse unfolding as soon as this movie cuts away? He was saying, I'm trying to Trying to propagate the ceremony. Yes, yes, exactly. Maybe killing him was the ceremony. Maybe killing Mamiya. Maybe unintentionally Takabe sent all this chaos and violence out into the world. Yeah, I I think it's really great. And going off the implication that Takabe is, in fact, the one doing this, I love that there is this irony where, as a detective, he's supposed to be curing society Mm -hmm. by stopping crime in order to create that sense of social order But now he is supposedly curing society by purging people and giving them this capacity to act uninhibited. Yeah, I think it's it's a a nice little twist of the knife in in just even what he saw himself as. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is, you know, like earlier in the film, Mamiya talks about being born anew. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And now, Katie, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is in fact The best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Okay. So I think this film, it's the best genre piece because it contains all these elements that are really satisfying in a genre movie. You know, the determined detective solving the mystery, the supernatural mystery elements, all this stuff. It, It uses all those elements in a way that's really simple, but very atmospheric and very satisfying it's a very well thought through movie it is thematically and filmmaking wise air fucking tight (laughs) i think when as an example of this type of supernaturally charged serial killer movie you are not going to get any better than cure you're just not yeah to me this is the best horror movie ever made because it is 
not only functioning at an exemplary level in just the terms of like the way it looks, mm-hmm. the performances all being absolutely perfect for what it's going for, but also the themes and what the questions that it's asking are yes. just so interesting and fantastic. And provocative and eerie and unsettling. And when they tell you in screenwriting class, show don't tell, this movie is the epitome of that. It only explains as much as it absolutely has to. However, you know, all of the all the thematic stuff comes across so clearly anyway in the filmmaking. So well done. Absolutely. And in a thousand different ways, you mm-hmm. know, it's there's so much talk about the violence simmering beneath the veneer of politeness in this movie. Yeah, but that's shown in in so many small resistances, you know, mm-hmm. his wife resisting him with the meat, <laughs> just putting it out raw, confounding people by just asking them mild questions mm-hmm. over and over mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. The way that doctors and cops react to being challenged is a big thing in this. movie. Yes, yes. Uh, and Kurosawa, I mean, with the title, he's identifying these symptoms as sort of a disease, that this is a a repression of our innate violent selves, and that society and law cause people to betray that root nature. And I think that this is a beautiful and intense movie, while also avoiding the sort of self-importance that can come along with a serious contemplative movie like this. Yeah, totally. Hang on. So I got to make a joke, though. Would you say that the cure is worse than the disease? Ah! Wow. Hey! Wow. Yes. <laughs> I mean, everybody dies with the cure, so I, we'll have to stick with That's the true. disease. <laughs> I guess so. I guess we will. We'll just have to stick to kind of not quite looking people in the eyes when we talk to them <laughs> and feeling alienated from everyone you know. Yeah. Better than getting, getting an X cut in your throat. And bleeding out everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> when your uh, dry cleaner misplaces your clothes, just remember, you could be getting your face peeled off in a public bathroom. <laughs> there you go. That's this movie's <laughs> real lesson. Just chill the fuck out a little bit, man. It's fine. Everyone's trying their best. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Katie. This was so much fun. Yes. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Please tell the people where they can read your writing, follow you on Twitter, all that jazz. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Rife with Katie. On a regular basis, I'm posting reviews on Polygon and RogerEbert.com every week. And I'm doing occasional work in Vulture and Rolling Stone. So if you follow those outlets, my name will pop up time to time too. But Twitter is the best place to find me for right now. There you go. Katie's writing is fantastic. I highly endorse uh, people checking it out uh, whenever it does pop up. So definitely do that. Thank you. That's nice. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Letterboxd, Instagram, and Patreon, most of all, because there's bonus episodes over there, folks. All kinds of great stuff. Yay. We've covered the history of EC Comics. We've covered Freaky Friday 2003. We've talked about the Treehouse of Horror episodes from seasons one to 10. (laughs) So (laughs) truly all kinds of stuff that might not fit as squarely into uh, the main feed of the podcast, but it's all a whole heap of fun. Awesome. And you can check that out for just a couple bucks and uh, rate and review all that stuff. You know the deal. That's it. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.